the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Happy March 26, 2021. I spoke yesterday about the need to teach heroism to our children. Plato in his book, The Republic, writes, Shall we just carelessly allow children to hear any casual tales which may be devised by casual persons and to receive into their minds ideas for the most part the very opposite of those which we should wish them to have when they are grown up? We cannot. Anything received into the mind at that age is likely to become indelible and unalterable. And therefore, it is most important that the tales which the young first hear should be models of virtuous thought. Then will our youth dwell in a land of health amid fair sights and sounds and receive the good in everything and beauty. The effluence of fair works shall flow into the eye and ear like a healthy giving breeze from a pure region and indelibly draw the soul from the earliest years into likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason. There is no nobler training than that. But today, our children are not given health giving breezes from the pure. They are not given beauty of reason. They are given instruction on transgenderism in kindergarten. They are given lessons on racial superiority and inferiority as toddlers younger than that. And they are given encomiums to Karl Marx as adolescents through Teen Vogue. The Cartoon Network colligates and gives them all of this. We've changed childhood in order to change our politics and our culture. We've disappeared childhood, and in the process, ironically, arrested all of our collective development. The one thing, the one thing adults can learn from children is purity of heart and soul, especially when it comes to such things as racial judgment, and we're now killing that off, too, making sure children are race-conscious. We are thus making a country and culture of race-conscious men and women children. Man-child and women-child. So it seems to me, what I was mentioning yesterday, that is a general focus on incidents that provide teachable moments, we start with tragedies, but we miss the teachable moment. Why do we focus so much on the perpetrators of tragedies, be they assassins in Boulder or Atlanta or Minneapolis or elsewhere? Why not the heroes? There are always heroes after all, just as there are always helpers in every situation. I'm consumed with the story, such as it is of Eric Talley, the police officer who was the first on the scene in Boulder. He was a 10-year police veteran dying at the age of 51. Is there no curiosity as to what made him want at age 41 to join the police force? He's a father of seven. No curiosity about any of that heroism? Could our children not learn something important about his life and life story? Well, perhaps in a better time, when we weren't talking about frying police like bacon, perhaps. But it seems to me 
those who emblemize those sentiments, like too many professional and multimillionaire athletes, are seen as more heroic in our culture today. The culture pays more attention to them than it ever would to an Eric Talley, perversely. David Dorn, a retired police officer in Minneapolis who tried to stop violence and was killed and left for dead, beloved by all, but not covered and celebrated by all because the wrong profession, I guess, wrong profession to be retired from, police officer, police captain. Those were real men, though, heroic men, men of martial structure and virtue and valor. And there are so many more. We just focus on the wrong men, perversely here. We focus on too many man-children, man-boys. Whether we take up the sword, the plow, the ball, the gavel, our children, or our Bibles, we must always do it like the men we are called to be, William Bennett wrote. Does anyone recall the My Turn column in Newsweek where interesting people in society wrote interesting essays? In 1977, William Bennett wrote one called Let's Bring Back Heroes. That was more than 40 years ago, and it still seems right to me. He wrote the following. As a child growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I had many heroes. The one I remember best was Gary Cooper as Marshal Will Kane in High Noon. I saw the movie when I was nine years old, and Coop, as well, is still special to me. He won the roughest, toughest guy in the world in the movie. His courage wasn't the macho man of Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry or the man with no name. That was the stuff of his antagonists, the Miller brothers. Will was worth admiring for other things. In language, I was to learn later for his courage and compassion and sense of what deserved to be loved and protected. In addition to Will, because my family and teachers thought it worth their time, I was exposed to a variety of other heroes and heroines. Lou Gehrig, Roy Campanella, Edmund Hillary, Tamsin Donner, Abraham Lincoln, Esther, Odysseus, and later on in college to Mother Courage and Socrates, Martin Luther King Jr. and Justice Holmes. In all of them, it is fair to say that there was a certain nobility of largeness, of soul, a hitching up of one's own purpose to larger purposes, to purposes beyond the self, to something that demanded endurance or sacrifice or courage or resolution or compassion. It was to nurture something because one had a sense of what deserved to be loved and preserved. From childhood through adolescence and into early adulthood, People went to the trouble of pointing out individuals who possessed qualities of human excellence and that were worth imitating and striving for. Eventually, we learned that heroes and their qualities were to be found even closer to home and that there were neighbors, friends, and even members of the family who possessed many of these qualities. 1977 again. In a recent survey of 1,200 junior high school children, the most popular response to the question, who is your hero? was nobody. Nobody. Other answers far down the line in this and other polls have revealed the devaluation of the hero, at least its devaluations, rock musicians, superstars in sports. This suggests in my own informal poll and the report of friends of mine who are teachers have confirmed my suspicions that heroes are out of fashion. For some reason, perhaps for no reason, many of us think it not proper to have heroes, or worse, that there aren't any, or only shabby ones. 
Such a fad is dangerous because it puts children's ideals, aspirations, and their notions of self-worth in jeopardy. Children need to know what deserves to be emulated and loved and nurtured, but knowing these things is not transmitted by the genes. These things must pass through education from generation to generation. C.S. Lewis didn't have the benefit of a poll, but he anticipated the results of this one when he remarked that the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. We've been too much suckered by what is called the reality of technique, or the aha theory of human behavior. The aha theory assumes that the most real aspects of anything are those that are base and are concealed from the eye. Aha, you may, be a, you may appear to be an honest lawyer, but that is only a devious approach to get business. Aha, teacher, you may appear to have an interest in my child, but you are merely putting me on in order to get me to tell the principal how fine you are so you can get a raise. Or the worst aha of all, aha, dad, you may try to make me believe that you're doing it for my good, but you're really just doing it to manipulate me and to show me you have power over me. Think about it. How is it that the worst somehow gains more reality than the best? How is it that baseness, insensitivity, callous indifference, hardness, sadism are more real than pride and honor and compassion and courage and sacrifice? Even if they are more prevalent, and I am not sure that they are, that just won't do. Reality doesn't depend on a majority vote. We have become so interested in raking muck that we scarcely lift our eyes from it. Whether it's a scandal in politics like Watergate or demythologizing or phony sophistication or believing that every good action has an ulterior and crass motive, the rise of the anti-hero and a variety of other forces have made the hero invisible to us. In 1950, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, William Faulkner, Faulkner mentioned, disdain, mentioned with disdain Authors who write not of the hearts, but of the glands. He reminded his audience that the basest of all things is to be afraid and that the writer must leave no room in his workshop for anything but the old verities and truths of the heart, lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed. Love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. He echoed Yeats's well-known prophecy about a time, perhaps our time, when ceremony of innocence is drowned and the best lack all conviction. It's hard to have convictions without ideals. Heroes instantiate ideals. Real heroes. Not the types with wires and robots and just because they may have a lot of money or a lot of fame. Maybe fictional or factual, real heroes are. As long as they embody character, as long as they possess qualities that we instantly recognize as true to human life, and worthy of human attention. In education, rather than squabble for innovation on the one hand and return to basics on the other, we ought to encourage something that is both, an innovation and a return to the basics of aspiration. Along with emphasis on arithmetic and language, even perhaps variations on sociology, we should tell some stories, true stories about heroes. We should offer our students and ourselves some real examples, not only of human corruption, degradation, and duplicity, for that is all around us, but also of the qualities we think men and women can and should possess, the 
qualities that keep our culture and our community from succumbing to corruption, degradation, and duplicity. Every community, even Sodom and Gomorrah, had one individual in it who could be identified to students as worth admiring. This could be done even as students are taught to engage in the now-honored practice of suspecting the motives of everyone else. I think the time taken for this exercise will be worth it, and it's possible that if we don't take the time, our children, taught as they have been to doubt, will live the consequences of not knowing what they may safely believe. Perhaps a good way to close here is with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb, driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. Seth, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It's finally Friday, 602-508-0960. And uh, we're going to do some open lines here. What's on your mind? We're going to have uh, some really interesting guests on, I think, some big topics for you today. We're going to do a little uh, death of conservatism and philosophy in our third hour with a uh, scholar named uh, Glenn Elmers, who got attacked by the Bulwark today. You know, the Bulwark is William Crystal's organization, and they called him a Claremont Institute, and the Claremont Institute fascist. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see how Glenn and we reply in the third hour. Second hour, uh, Pete... Um, Pete Peterson's going to join us, as he does on uh, on frequent Fridays, to talk about uh, bigger things in our culture. One of the um, sad, I guess, lamentable and probably unavoidable, probably unavoidable uh, things we conservatives must wrestle with is constantly re-educating. So. When Mark Twain said a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes, I think that was Mark Twain. Uh, this, this happens all the time with us, doesn't it? Or against us, actually. That would be the better preposition. Happens all the time against us. So, for example, there is this debate right now about <clears throat> getting rid of the Senate filibuster. And the dominant narrative invoked yesterday by the President of the United States is that the filibuster is um, a relic of the Jim Crow era. Now, I don't quite understand why anyone takes Joe Biden seriously on understanding things Jim Crow when he thinks it's a bird. The opposite of Jim Crow is Jim Eagle, he thinks. That's what he said. But nonetheless... Since the media didn't want to focus on that lap, lack of knowledge, it focuses on Jim, uh, the filibuster being a relic of Jim Crow. It's simply not true. And one can have any number of views about the appropriateness of a filibuster and the sanity of it. It is insanity to get rid of it in the midst of a massive debate over far-reaching legislation, the time to debate getting rid of or keeping the filibuster is not in the crucible of the crisis itself. It's in the calmer time where oxes aren't being gored. 
But nonetheless, as Paul Mirangoff points it out, amongst the many falsehoods Joe Biden and the left mouth is the claim that the Senate fil- filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era. The line originated with Barack Obama. Um, even though Biden defended the filibuster for decades and Obama himself defended it. We played the audio of that yesterday. Both are peddling false claims, though. That's the real crime here, not the hypocrisy. The Jim Crow era extends. We did some of this yesterday from about the 1870s to roughly 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Roughly, roughly. The filibuster predates all of that. It was used before the Civil War and on issues unrelated to race. For example, Democrats employed the filibuster in 1841 when they opposed legislation to create a national bank. The same year, there was a filibuster over the firing of Senate printers. Four years earlier, Whigs used the filibuster against Democrats who moved to expunge from the record a Senate resolution censoring Andrew Johnson. Jackson. In reality, the filibuster was very rarely used against civil rights until near the end of the Jim Crow era. It wasn't needed for that purpose because only in the late 1940s did Congress muster much enthusiasm for passing such legislation in the first place. Arguably, the most significant use of the filibuster, at least um, through the 1950s, occurred in 1917 and had nothing to do with race, had to do with anti-war senators led by Robert La Follette, and they filibustered legislation to arm American merchant ships against German submarines. There was a sickening use, of course, of the filibuster later against civil rights legislation in the 20s, um, and this filibuster was used against anti-lynching legislation in the 30s as well, and Other civil rights legislation was filibustered routinely in the 50s and 60s, but it's not a relic of the Jim Crow era any more than it's a relic of World War I. In fact, the continued existence of the filibuster owes nothing to race. To criticize the filibuster as a relic of Jim Crow is to criticize voting as a relic of Jim Crow. Crow. The filibuster predated Jim Crow and was used for all kinds of things having nothing to do with race, though occasionally it was used in matters of race, just as voting long predated Jim Crow and by and large had nothing to do with race, though it has been used on occasion to deal with matters of race. Biden and Obama are simply being dishonest on two levels. Their historical claim is bogus. And their opposition to the filibuster is inconsistent with their past positions on this practice. Again, have your views on the filibuster, but um, probably the time to get rid of it is not in a 50-50 Senate on the verge of far-reaching massive legislation. Remind me to talk about this song when we come back. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Don is in Phoenix. Hi, Don. Hi, Seth. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. How are you? Uh, great. Great. Thank you. 
Um, well, I loved your uh, monologue on heroes, and I feel like the uh, Democrats have kind of destroyed the idea of heroes um, by holding up um, real pathetic figures so they can exploit them to gain power. And uh, I feel like, uh, you know, Anita Hill back in the day, Christine Ford, who uh, seems to suffer from, from some neur- neuroses, you know. And then, uh, you know, of course, like George Floyd and Nathan Phillips, remember the Native American guy? I do. And uh, that they went after the, those Covington kids. Yes, uh, Nick Sandman, right? The Nick Sandman yeah. incident, yep. Yeah, and like Jesse Smollett yep. with the yep. fake attack. Yep. So well, look, you're, you're on to something important here, uh, Don, that I did not get into, but well worth mentioning. I'm glad you brought it up. What was last summer all about but the destruction of heroes? Well, of yeah, course, it starts statues, with yeah. every child's natural hero. What, what are the child, what are, who, are, who are a child's most natural heroes? Oh, okay. It might be a super, a super action figure. It could be. It could be once upon a time a Superman or something like that. Could be a fireman. It's almost always a policeman. Once upon a time, it was anyway. Those were natural yeah. heroes of children. All of last summer was about destroying two things: the image of the police as a force for good in society. And the actual destruction of statues to heroes. Actual destruction of statues of people like Frederick Douglass and George Washington. Physical destruction of people like that, of statues like that. Wasn't that what last summer was about? You don't see conservatives going around tearing down statues of liberal icons or of any icons. I would argue that Lincoln and Douglas were American icons. Washington was an American icon. It had nothing to do with party. had to do with honoring a good thing about this country. That's what it had to do with. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, I just think they, you know, they exploit people and they find the most pathetic, you know, hero to rise up and uh, just to gain more power and, control over everybody and well of course and, uh, of course my and, concern is like with uh, the george floyd case now going on in minneapolis yep um you know the way i see it you know i i imagine that he probably had some drugs on him and swallowed him when the cops showed up to get rid of him and because the coroner's report did Say drug overdose. Yeah, you know? he was on. Uh, he 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 was uh, he was doped up on a few things, uh, including fentanyl. I don't know that he swallowed them there. If he was o- operating off it, uh, fentanyl is it's um, it can be swallowed, of course, uh, in in pill form, but uh, it can also be taken other ways. I, look, early on, early on, there was a question about making this guy into a hero. He was a victim. Of something. And we don't know what yet. We don't know what yet. He was a victim of something, whether it was his own substance uh, abuse, whether it was uh, his own ill health, whether 
any of that might have been um, aided and abetted in increasing lethality based on the encounter he had with um, with uh, with Derek Chauvin. You know, whether the carotid was blocked or not, whether there was trauma or not. We don't know any of this. But it was interesting how quick we were to turn him into a hero and how quick we were to also destroy the real heroes in America in the rampage of the summer of last year. I mean, literally tearing down statues to heroes, literally American heroes. Yeah, and I feel the Democrats, the way, either way the case goes, you know, if uh, Chauvin is acquitted or convicted, I mean, they win-win either way. If uh, if there's an acquittal, there's going to be... Uh, if there's an acquittal, there will be riots. If there is a yeah. guilty verdict, there will not be, and that should tell you something, too. And I think they'd be happy with either result, the Democrat Party. Uh, the business is exploitation, Don. The dis- yes. business yeah. is exploitation, and... Any um, any harbor in a any any harbor in a storm, any port in a storm. The problem is, they also create the storms. Nice work, Don. Thank you. Nice nice of you to put that together. Iconoclasm is what we're talking about. The senseless destruction of important imagery. I didn't get a chance to ask you or say what I wanted to say about that ABBA song, SOS, which we included in our or introduced into our bumper rotation today. So the way it works is I, I will find a song I like. Basically, I get it from either Eric Hansen at Mike Gallagher's shop because he and I compete for the best 70s and 80s music in our bumpers. You'll notice Mike Gallagher has the second best bumper music in the country. Um, or I'm listening to my 70s or 80s stations and uh, I hear a song. I say, yeah, that would be great. Join or rejoin music, bumper music. And then I'll send a clip of it to Bill. And Bill will scowl and frown and complain and throw a tantrum because, you know, it's music about life with lyrics you can understand in a good harmony. And so I thought I would get that today from him with this inclusion of SOS by ABBA. And he strangely liked it. But I know why. I know why. You know why, Bill? Because it has that kind of proto-punk new wave beat to it that makes it more into your era of the 90s. It has that. That's why you like it. Yeah, that's why. It's, it's proto-punk, that song, a little bit. New wavy. Mod, if you will. All right, quick call before we join. We are joined by uh, Pete Peterson. Uh, Bob, in surprise. Hi, Bob. Hey, Seth. Real quick. Uh, so I recall in high school asking one of my economics teachers about uh, the national debt, you know, concerned about it back in high school. And he gave me an interesting response. And uh, his response was, well, how much is the United States worth? If you were to sell the United States on a real estate uh, uh you know, as real estate, how much would it be worth? And I didn't have a counter to that argument. And uh, I was wondering, you know, what is the counter to that argument uh, if you can expand on that? I don't know that I understand it as an argument, though. Yeah, so 
so when I expanded on it, he's like, well, you know, let's just take Alaska. Uh, if our debt's so bad, what if we just sold Alaska? How much is Alaska worth with all this national resources? So what he was saying is, you know, the national debt is just like a home equity loan on your car or on your house. Well, I think our national debt far out, outweighs our land value. Now, it may not outweigh our land and infrastructure value. But land value of the United States, all I, I don't know. It's 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 it's. I don't think it's thirty trillion dollars. I don't think it is. That's, yeah, that's that's the counter. I mean, so that's your point, so isn't it? Well, hypothetically, you take Alaska with all the resources. The all right, let's say it's worth. I don't know. What, I, I'm not. How great much does at it worth? I, I mean, how do you how do you? And that's what the economics. Well, well, there is that. there is a number. I mean, you can you can you can get that number. You assess the land value of Alaska. I think the land value of all the United States is somewhere probably. I don't know. Ballpark is probably somewhere in the twenty trillion figure. I think maybe somewhere around. I don't think it's thirty. But then you have to add all the other stuff you're talking about. What are the natural resources worth? What is the gas worth? What is the oil worth? And I wouldn't even be. I wouldn't even have a concept as to how to account for that. But if the argument is it's worth far more than our national debt, so we're fine, unless I'm missing something, it presupposes that you have to sell it to someone. How much time do I have here, Bill? Three seconds? I have three minutes. Oh. I'm in the way wrong segment. I apologize. Bob, isn't that the problem? Isn't that that it presumes that you have to sell it to someone? I, I Yes. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, you don't necessarily sell your house when you have a mortgage on it. No, but you do sell it if you want to appreciate that. I mean, if you are upside down, what do you do? Yeah. Because that's the question, isn't it? Isn't that the question that with our national debt, we're upside down? Or underwater, right. as they the, say. Yes, that was my question to the economic. Yeah, we owe. Oh, yeah, hey. yeah. Yes, yes. And his response was, "Well, it's just like your house. You know, you put a mortgage on it. How much is your house worth? How much is the United?" Well, there is worth? a there and is was, a notion of mortgage here, and it's about mortgaging the future because at some point someone does have to pay this. You know, if you have a mortgage, you can't pay with your bank. Your bank takes the house and sells it. You know, at, at what point do, do does the um, does the national debt come to where you have to say we're so far upside down that we have to go into massive inflation or Weimar Germany financial expectations? Or I mean, your 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 professor's concept is that it, there, there's there's a willing seller and a willing buyer here. I don't know that we have a willing seller, and I think we shudder at the winning buyer, especially if the winning buyer is China. You know, I, I, I think, I think that if I have a, a a complaint about our party and our movement, it's that we seem to give a damn about debts and deficits only when we're not in power. That's when we seem to care about them. The most, and that's a hypocrisy on our part. Now, having said that, I also don't think it's on the top ten list of issues 
that are most prominent, near, dear, or important to our survival. I think if we get our economics right, we can get our debt right. And if I think, and I think if we get our economics right, it's going to be dependent upon pro-growth policies, more use of our natural resources, more employment, more entrepreneurialism, more of all of the things that you get with rising gross national product. And the only way to do that is to empower more people to risk and invest. Risk and invest. None of that comes with the tax policies that we have right now. And that's why I believe it is only through our tax policy, my view, only through our tax policy that we're able, going to be able to have a debt policy. And until we get serious about that and unleashing the incredible power and boiler that we know this country and its people can be by less saddled regulations and taxes, less saddling regulations and taxes, we're going to have debt accumulation from here to well beyond the eye's ability to see. And I don't think we ever have a good conversation about it because we always let two things happen in the tax debate. We let the left run the, run the tables about how it's always just going to be for and to the wealthy. And we have conservatives and Republicans who have forgotten the arguments about individual autonomy, entrepreneurship, and growth. Those are the two problems we have. And when you have that up against a regime that just wants to spend everything on the shelves and give away the store, you're in the deep soup. The effect of uh, what the governor did yesterday is already having good consequences. I was walking down the hall here earlier, and uh, a woman was going toward the elevators. She goes, oh, do I need to go back? She didn't have a mask on her face. She's, she looked at me and goes, oh, do I need to go, go back and get, get a mask? And I said, no, you don't. You don't need to go back unless you forgot something important. And she laughed at me and nodded and went on. It's already already having a good um, a good mark a good imprint on our psyche i love it i love it i was doing some research today on masks and children and i think we're going to see a lot more of it because i i just off the off the cuff was mentioning that children with certain kinds of intellectual disabilities you know they need to read people's faces whether they're Adult faces or whether they're contemporaries' faces, they can't. When you're masked, it's a whole series of emotions you miss out on. And I saw this really interesting study on that. Um, that um, well, the title of which is "Children's Emotional Inferences from Masked Faces: Implications for Social Interactions During COVID-19." And of course, very fancy title. But that 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 is 
that is that is a huge unforeseen other consequence of the useless masks from the study in everyday life children cannot draw emotional inferences from facial configurations when they are blockaded by a mask they miss out on such things as anger and disgust fear approval happiness sadness praise does anyone think about that in masking children from each other and from the adults in their lives has anyone thought about that does it sound like a small thing to you I'll tell you, all these things sound small until you put them in an aggregate. All these things sound small until you put them in an aggregate. Oh, what's a mask? Why has it become political? Well, has anyone thought about the importance of it? Has anyone thought about why some regimes mandate them through a theological edict? Or why criminals use them? Or why people wear disguises or why and how children learn from each other and from adults. I don't, I don't think anyone thinks about these things. And it turns out what seems like a small matter to ask people has become a big matter when you mandate it against every known piece of good child development. And that's another war on children in our society.